0: Jonah chapter 3. Well, Jonah has just been vomited out of the fish's mouth on dry land after three days of being within the, the belly of the whale. You know what's interesting is that when God sends a man, God gives a man a choice of obedience. Another reason why this new Calvinistic attitude, and I say it's new because it's a new generation now, says that man does not have a choice. Man has a choice. God gives men free will. God wants men to come and love Him out of their heart. And not not because He must or out of fear. Fear is a satanic tactic. Love is a tactic of the Holy Spirit. He woos you. Every single one of us that have been married, I don't care who it is, unless they were married for the wrong reasons, wooed their spouse. I've got to be honest with you, when I realized that Dina was interested in me, the wooing was really turned up. <laughs> I wanted to be everything to her. I wanted to show her I loved her and cared by In just the little minute details, God does that, and I wouldn't think man comes up with this. Man's a hopeless hopeless romantic. No, man is is evil within his nature. God is a hopeless romantic. And he woos us. He gives us a free will. He wants us to love him out of a pure heart. So Jonah is told, I want, by God, I want you to go to Nineveh. I'm not going to do that. Because I believe it is hard that God knew. See, men do not like the grace of God. Men chide the grace of God, because God is gracious. And God loves those that that men naturally would not love. How could God love a Hitler? How could God love me? Seriously. But yet He does. And I think that the sound of Nineveh, the Assyrians... Wow, you read the Bible, the Assyrians, you talk about the Babylonians, but you read the Assyrians, and it's got a connotation in the context of the Word of God, at cruelty, viciousness. Like we talked about uh, when we were in Isaiah, one of the key figures in Assyria was a gentleman named Sennacherib. He was vicious, and he was known for his viciousness and his swiftness. The Assyrians brought up uh, that, I'm Sure not going to do it. You know, God sometimes allows us and puts in front of us people that you normally wouldn't talk to. But when you do, the blessings are there. So Jonah's in this fish. Jonah cries in the belly of the fish. Do you know there are so many things in the Psalms, I reread some of them last week, I'm not going to get into this time, that I believe that echo the cry from, the, from you know, uh, the, the King James calls it that Jonah was in hell, you know, in the belly of the fish. And yet he cried to God, and God had mercy on Jonah, preserved him and spewed him out and gave him an opportunity. There's another thing I want to bring up before I get in too far in this time. Do you know if you miss an opportunity, and this has happened to me several times of speaking with somebody. I've, I've said this uh, story before. I'll do it again briefly. It states the point very well. This is the mercy of God. I was in a place in Sparks, Nevada about 25 years ago, a place called Burgess Park, at lunch. This guy came around to me, and he kept walking around, and he, and he obviously was wanted to ask me something, so he came by and he asked me for a joint. I said, no, I didn't have one, and he stumbled off. Wow, talk about conviction. In the open, nice summer day in a park, God, please, if you want me to speak to this guy, bring him to me again. And ten minutes later, this guy came around again. And we sat down. And I found out that his dad was an old pastor, a Baptist preacher. And we sat down and talked about Jesus Christ. God is serious about souls, and he's going to use you to do it. He's not going to use a book. Books are great. He's not going to use the Internet. The Internet's great. He's going to use you. And if you're serious about it, God is too. And this is what happens here. Jonah, who had an opportunity of a lifetime, chose to do something else. God put him in a position where he was on his back. And I've had sons that once somebody pins you on your back, there's nothing else you could do but look up. And you pray to God for mercy, and he's going to use you. Isn't that wonderful? God doesn't say, I give you one chance, and if you blow it, you're out. No, God's a merciful God, and he knows your heart. So here's where we're at. Jonah's on the dry land. Let's start in in chapter 3, verse (laughs) 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord, now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, a three-day journey in extent. Let me read down in chapter 4, and we'll get back into this. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence That is, in his hands, he knew his city very well. Verse 9, who can tell if God will relent and turn away his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw the works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Wow. Wow. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach the message I tell you. See, that's the thing. We don't preach our understanding. We don't preach our message. We preach the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul said, "I don't want to know anything among you except for Christ and Him crucified." You know, Jonah, I want you to. I want you to 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 study this this message, and I want you to know it for No, he said, "I want you to go, and I am going to tell you the message that I want you to." To tell them. I think that consequences, because of sin and disobedience, are a great deterrent not to well allow us to go there again. You know? Sometimes God will use a consequence of, of loss of, of you know of whatever you know money or, or like me in the park that day. It was it was Lord, I can I can't I can't believe this. I can't believe I didn't say anything and I, and I and I lost this message and I was grieved, Lord, and, and it, the consequences of, of being uh, shameful or what have you. The consequence of Jonah saying, no, I'm not going to do it. Cost him to be in a belly of a fish. Cost him to be thrown overboard in a tempest and so on and so forth. Unattended consequences for disobedience. When all we have to do is obey the Lord and and... Uh, he is right there with us. So second time, he said, "You, I want you to go into this city, and wicked, I know it's wicked. God sent us out in this world, he knows it's wicked. It's wicked and it's violent. And by the way, did you know that the Ninevites worship the fish god, Dagon? <laughs> uh wow. You know, Greg said something tonight about, you know, when... When somebody would say something about his parents, he would get furious. When somebody says something about my God, I'm the same way. I feel like I don't have to defend him. What's the best defense for God? His Word and our obedience. You cannot, when you have the Word of God and the obedience, there is nothing more powerful, and we'll see that, the greatest revival recorded recorded in the Scriptures. So Jonah rose, verse 3. He went to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord, Nineveh was an exceeding great city, a three days' journey in extent. Three days. That was a big city. It's not easy standing up for the Lord. Let me tell you. Everybody that Jesus called, called publicly. And to stand before people... uh, and and you do it, and, and that and you you make a practice of it. Next thing you know, you're eager. If something comes up, you know a lot of people say, "Well, I don't know how to talk to, about the Lord. I don't. What do I do?" God knows your personality. Lord, open the door for me. You know, He told Jonah, "I will. You you just go, and you preach the message I give to you." Jonah's got the easy part. All he has to do is go. But look at verse 4. Jonah began to enter the city at a first day's walk. He, he walked right into the middle of the city. Boom. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Wow. Overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, one, one of the differences between the, the, the way that the Spirit operated in the Old Testament versus the New, the New Testament, Jesus said, He will be not only with us, but in us forever. But in the Old Testament, you read several, all the occasions, the Spirit came upon whom they will, you know. I remember, you know, Samuel was saying to Saul that he would go down a little ways. King Saul, remember, and he would go down a little ways, and God would change his heart. And he started. He went down a little ways, and he started prophesying to the prophets, and it became a saying. Saul's one of the prophets, and so forth. But we know, for, for the uh, context of the Word of God, that Saul wasn't indwelt with the Spirit like we are. But the Spirit came upon whom whom it will. It must have been such a convicting message that the people believed God. This was a cruel nation. Nobody is beyond repentance. That's why I am so indignant against this theology, if you want to call it that, that says man doesn't have free will. Yes, man does. And nobody is beyond repentance. Even Charles Manson sitting in that cell right now is not beyond the reach of God. You tell me if there's... I don't know, and I'm not a history buff, although I did like it in high school, but as far as I can read and tell, there was not much more of a fierceness uh, and cruelty than the Assyrians. I don't know. Maybe there is. But they must have heard the word of God to such an extent that their hearts were pricked and they believed God. Wow you know I have a few minutes here let me uh, let me read you something here that might might be helpful in a contrast we have we have done by the way a, uh, a new thing on the internet called gospel invitation it's only 21 minutes long if you it's on a podcast if you could get that either downloaded or Tell your friends, do it. Um, We did it, what, last week sometime. And uh, what does it mean to believe in God? What does it mean to to believe in Christ? You know, I mean, I think Christ was a historical figure. Jesus of Nazareth was attested more than probably any other historical figure around. And yet he was God in human flesh. What's it like to believe in God? Well, you know, Jonah went into Nineveh and he said, Hey, you know what? Forty days... And this town, this city is going to be overthrown. It's going to perish. And that must have hit in such a way that they believed him. But listen to God's own people in the wilderness. It's out of Psalm 78. Okay? It says, They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his ways. He divided the sea. He caused them to pass through. He made the waters a sand as a heap. Talking about not only through the Red Sea, but the Jordan. Remember when they passed beyond the Jordan and Canaan. In the daylight he led them with a cloud, and at night he led them by the light of fire. He claimed the rocks of the wilderness. He gave them to drink out of the depths of the rock. He brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. And yet they sinned more and more against him. And they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. But God continued to feed them and furnish a table in the wilderness. Behold, he smote the rock and the waters gushed out. He gave them flesh for the people, for all the people to eat. Therefore the Lord God heard this and he was wroth. They kept complaining and tempting him. So a fire was kindled against Jacob and the anger came up against Israel. Listen to this. Because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. Now listen, they knew God. God was leading them out. They saw him go through the, take him out through the, the uh the sea. They saw all these miraculous signs, and yet the word of God says they believe not in God nor in his salvation. So what does it mean to believe biblically believe in God? You believe in him as he is and who he is, not for his benefits. You believe God because he is God. You believe in Jesus Christ as Savior of the world that came in and died for your sin personally. Christ didn't come to be a moral teacher. Christ didn't come to to teach ethics and morality and, and be a good guy and do all the right things. Christ came and hung on the cross for you, the just for the unjust, that he might bring you to God. That's what it means to believe in Christ. And when we turn from our sin and place our trust in him, we believe in God. And so his people saw these miraculous things, And the Bible is replete with the fact that they believed not in God and they didn't trust in His salvation. Wow. So this preaching, this preaching was dynamic. He came into Nineveh, an evil society, and said, Listen, in 40 days, if you don't repent from your sin, this whole city is going to be overthrown and you're going to perish. Verse five. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. You know, sackcloth was not only an actual, uh, very coarse, uh, kind of a, a knapsack type, very coarse garment. It also has a symbol meaning. It means mourning. You know, when you put on sackcloth and you dwell in ashes, you're mourning. You're you're in absolute mourning for your sins. That's what the word of God does. The word of God convicts of sin, not fancy preaching, not you know some some form of trying to get people into the church so we can get going. And church is a good place, and, you know the preaching of the word of God convicts of sin. That's what convicts. It's not the teacher necessarily. It's not the way that they preach, but it's the word of God. That's why we must like. Just like Greg was saying, we need to know the Word of God, we need to get into the Word of God, and let it get into us. Because when we preach the Word of God, that convicts of sin. Wow. The king. Not only the, from the greatest to the least, but everybody, in verse 5, everybody. And you know what? This revival was so great, this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41 about Nineveh. Check this out. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. They preach and they, they believe Jonah's preaching, but the Son of God was standing preaching and they believe not. Nineveh is going to condemn them. Not because Nineveh is more righteous than that generation. Nineveh believed not. Or I should say, that generation believed not in God, and Nineveh repented. Like I said, sackcloth was a garment. It was typically made of camel or goat hair. And it was very coarse and black. It was not only coarse, but it was, it was dark in color to signify the, the blackness and darkness of sin, but it was also symbolized deep mourning. Remember, sackcloth and ashes? Well, look at verse 6. After the least to the greatest of them repented, then the word of the Lord came to the king of Nineveh. And even he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Wow. Can truly the proud king of this great city, yes. Nobody is beyond the reach of God. You know, I think sometimes we, we see people that just act uh, just act wickedly and we we tend to want to brush them off. But no one is beyond the reach of God. Remember that. I think for me as I study this book to present it is one of the things that, that come out the most. God is so compassionate. Wow. So compassionate. people that don't want to repent, people that don't want to believe in Christ after years and years of hearing and seeing, irrefutable evidence. And you know what the greatest evidence in the New Testament is? A changed life. A life that has been touched by the Word of God and changed. It is absolutely intellectual suicide not to take the claims of Christ. This man, this king, in all his pompousness, if that's a word, set aside his robes, set aside his festal uh, pompousness, if you will. You know the opposite of that? Remember the book of Acts when, when Herod was, when he was in his thing and he was preaching, people go, oh, he's a god, he speaks as god. What happened? God sent worms and ate him, and he died. This man, at the preaching of Jonah, laid aside those robes. This great cruel king of this cruel city, of this cruel nation, laid aside his robes. That must have been a conviction that I wish we had. The preaching today is is a shame. It is. You go on some of these radio stations and you hear these people talk. Wow, we have people today that say that because of the death and resurrection of Christ, God is reconciled to the world now. Is that a... a really? God is not reconciled to the world. God needs no reconciliation. Man needs reconciliation to God. See, just a little twisting the words. Wow. In verse 70 he says, He caused it to be proclaimed and post throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, neither, or excuse me, Let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. They were serious. Are we serious? Wow! I think that if we, when we look at Nineveh, no wonder Jesus Christ, and we better listen to His words. That these men that we're listening and talking about right now, these men of Nineveh, shall stand up in, the, in this generation that He was at at the judgment, and they're going to condemn it because they pre they repented. What does repentance mean? You know, repent. You know, repentance simply means to turn. To turn from yourself to Christ. To turn from your sinful ways to Christ. To turn from your lost condition, your aimlessness in life to Christ. To turn from from your good works and I will make it attitude to Christ, who is the only one that's able to take your punishment That is repentance. And these people knew that if they didn't repent of their Mm -hmm. sin, God was going to instep in judgment. And that's exactly what's going to happen today with people that don't repent at one greater than Jonah is here. You know, we talked in the first couple of of chapters, and I thought it was great, that the one who caused... this, This is just amazing to me. The one that caused this fish... This great mammal to swallow Jonah and hold him there for three days and three nights, is the same God who caused that fish in the lake to have the dropman in its mouth that Peter caught. Remember? Go down to the, the edge of the water, throw in your line, and the first fish you catch, reel him in. And open up his mouth, and you know what, Peter, there's gonna be a dropman there. And we you pay taxes for you and me. That's the same God. That's amazing. No wonder Jesus says, you know what, they're going to condemn you because they preached it and they received a prophet's word. (laughs) You don't realize who you have standing here now proclaiming to you eternal life, and you are not accepting it. Wow. So he he, he proclaimed and published a decree in in verse 7 throughout Nineveh. And the decree usually by the king was sealed. You went against the king that was usually treason by death. The king took it seriously. He said uh, in verse 7, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything again. Do not let the meat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And cry mightily to God, Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The violence. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel writes. And I have, I'm going to lift up four verses from Ezekiel 18. If you want to write them down, fine. Just so listen to this. This is in Ezekiel 18. This is a famous chapter that says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And the soul that sins, it shall die. Death is separation from God. It's not cessation of life. It's separation from God. It's serious. Listen to what Ezekiel says. Verse 23, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? Wow. Verse 27 again, When a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. Verse 28. Because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live and not die. Now the last one in verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. My friends, is this a lack of will? Absolutely not. God is pleading with you. Turn. Turn. That's the problem with plastic Christianity today. We're not telling people to turn from your sin. Oh, Jesus is a great guy. I love Jesus. And they go on their happy little way, or like Greg was saying, they, they don't believe the Bible, or, or they you know they don't do anything. How can you proclaim to love Jesus Christ, and you call him a liar? Because he authenticates the Word of God. The problem is is that people are ignorant. Ignorant of the Word. But you know what? Even the most ignorant of us, God can get a hold of us if we would just turn to Him and listen to Him. Even the king was saying, again, back in Jonah 3.8, even the king was saying, let man and beast be clothed. Who knows? Let him turn from his violence. Verse 9, who can tell if God will... Turn and relent. Actually, that word in the in the original language is repent. It's used of God and man in the Bible. Of man, it's a willful turning of the mind of his ways about himself, sin, and God. Repenting seems, in a metaphorically way, in the phenomena, if you will, of God that He who changes His mind or He relents the calamity because of man's free will to turn from their sin to Christ. God sends no one to hell. Men choose to go there. God has done everything to keep people from hell. Remember, hell was made for the devil and his angels, never for man. Man chooses to go in a place of separation from God. Preaching is, is if you break this down, wow, wow. There must have been a, a great outpouring of the Spirit because, again, Jesus had mentioned that these men that we're reading about here are going to condemn the men in his generation. Again, because they repented at the message of a prophet. Can you imagine God in human flesh speaking the words that he spoke to his prophets and they reject him? But I love what he says in verse 9. Again, who can tell if God will turn and relent, turn away from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. And again, perish does not mean cessation of life. Perish means in a place where the goodness and grace of God is absent. Look at verse 10. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Isaiah 55, that famous verse 6-9. Six, six through nine, Listen to this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. Again, there's that word turn. Let him turn to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abide Abundantly pardon. He's not going to say, well, you know what? We've got to work on a few things here. And that's what a lot of people think. I've done. You don't understand what I've done. The Apostle Paul says that I am the least of all the apostles. I'm not fit to be called apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Can you imagine how many times the devil must have ransacked his brain about that? But he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. God will abundantly pardon. I don't care what you've done. And then he closes with this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That's God. So who are we going to rest in? Our imaginations? Our reasoning? Or are we going to rest ourselves in a God whose thoughts and ways are something we can't even fathom. But we know one thing for sure. Everything that happens is for our good and His glory. And they repented. And God turned away the disaster that He planned. Wow. And I'll just end this chapter. You know, the fact that we know from history... That Nineveh, after 150 plus years of grace, was destroyed. And the proverbs are true: as a dog returneth to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. You know, when we when we fail to learn from history, as these people did, a generation and probably a couple of generations have, 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 have the generation had passed, years had passed. They didn't learn from the history. Daniel went through the same thing the Babylonian Empire. They didn't learn from history. What's happening now? We don't need these scriptures. They're old. These, these scriptures are outdated. They're over 2,000 years old. Who needs them? This is the 21st century. We need new revelations. This is what's going on today. We don't learn from history. Judgment is laughed at. Judgment's looked at like something that's not coming. In the church... Uh, Greg had touched on a gentleman named Rick Warren. There's others that are leading the way in that judgment's not coming. We are going to get this earth ready for Jesus Christ to come back. That's a delusion. That's a lie. Men laugh at it, don't they? Know history? We got a great quote, and I'll, I'll say this now: I don't think that I'm going to get done tonight unless we want to hear it until midnight. I'm a lot sick. This is a wonderful, wonderful book. Paul says in Romans 15, 4, and I'll mention this, this is at the end, but I'll mention it now. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Whatever was written before was written for us. You know? And if you think about it, there's really no defense of the Bible unless you can defend the Bible from the first 7 or 8, 11, whatever chapters of Genesis. If you have a problem in the first three chapters of Genesis, you have a problem with the Bible. That's just the way it is. Because it's the cradle of the seed of the Word of God. In it, where did I come from? I didn't come from some slime in some pond. How degrading. I came from the hand of a loving God who fashioned me in my mother's womb, who I love dearly, and He fashioned everything you know, everything about me, my personality, he loved me. My kids and some of your kids in, in school, you know, they do ceramics, you know, and they, and they make you something in class and they mold the clay, you know, and they put it in the kiln and they come home and they say, look, Mom, I, you know. They did that. They fashioned that purposely for you. And that's what God was doing. I know where I came from. I know who I came from. Oh, back to Genesis. I know why I'm here. To know God. Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam heard God walking in the cool of the day. What are you doing? I knew I was naked. Have you eaten from the fruit that I have told you not to eat? What does God do? God clothes them. Yes, Adam of consequences drove them out of the garden, but he clothed them so he could have fellowship with them. Consequences, yes. Wow, I know where I'm going. So there's the three answers of life. Where did I come from? What am I doing here? Where am I going? All in Genesis. Wow. i was getting late. They turn from the evil way. God pronounces through Jeremiah. Jeremiah 18, verse 8. If that nation against whom I have pronounced judgment. Turn from their evil. Again, there's that word. Turn. I will repent, this is uh, King James, of the evil that I thought to do unto them. Or I will relent of that evil. I will not, if they turn. You know, that's the whole idea of, of Ezekiel 33, about the watchman on the wall. We're called to be watchmen. Why? If men have no free will and men are programmed, and some are programmed to, to you know, believe, and other programmed or not, then why is the watchman on the wall? This pronouncement, God would be a monster because He says to Ezekiel, "You're my watchman, and if I sound the trumpet and you sound the alarm and they turn from their way, they're going to live. But if you don't sound the trumpet and they perish, guess where I'm going to acquire their blood at your hands? God would be a monster." if we don't have the capacity to hear and turn. The preaching of the Jonah, greater than Jonah, is here. You know, I'll end here. We'll do that. We'll, we'll end next week and then uh, talk about this book. But you know, the book of Jonah stresses the fact that God's love transcends all national distinctions and embraces the most unloving. Do you know how selfish you were? Maybe some of you still are. I know how selfish I am, and I definitely know how selfish I was before Christ. Oh, Jeffy was a good old boy. But you know what? Don't trample on Jeffy's his you know his program. You know? I know what I want, and, and I know what I want. And, you know, I get irritable if it doesn't go my way. I get irritable if I can't have the things I want. I want my way. That's the shortest definition of sin. I will. I will. All we like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. And I can't think of a greater way to end this chapter than to understand that God, he is a God that is full of mercy. And he saw their wicked works, and they turned from their evil way. You know, when I was 22 years old and I heard the gospel for the first time and I turned to him, I've never been the same. I didn't understand a lot of things. I still don't understand a lot of things. But I know this, that God loves me. who is unlovable. God has shown me mercy. God has shown you mercy. And those that are listening to this, if they've never put their trust in Christ, they don't know the mercy of God. But these people did. And for 150 years or so, they experienced life without judgment. And I want to end in in this tonight. I want to go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. You know, I remember the first time I saw John 3.16. I think I was watching the Super Bowl or, or a, a football game with my dad years ago. And, you know, they show, the stadium, and everything. You, know, you see them all the time now. People have cardboard ups in John 3.16, you know. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was stuff from the Bible. Everybody knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world, Nineveh, that's here, yeah. Even though we don't know those places by name now, it transcends all national barriers. God loves the unlovable. God is merciful to those who you wouldn't think he would. God so loves the world. The cosmos, the that's sea of humanity. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. There's that word again. The king of Nineveh knew that. If we turn, we won't perish, but have everlasting life. It's a two-edged sword. And yet, look at the last verse, John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. See, Jesus was God in human flesh. Jesus was God that came down to earth. And by believing in him, we have eternal life. God gives life, and that is through Jesus Christ. And by believing in that, God turns from judging us to judging Christ for us on the cross to us being welcomed in in life and free of condemnation. We pass from death into life. And the Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, must have been so convicted they realized that if we turn from our sin and do righteousness and turn to God and repent, God is going to alleviate that. And the a preaching of the cross without repentance, my friends, is death. There's no preaching of the cross of Christ without repentance. That is death. That's like sending somebody to hell clothed in, in, in good smelling clothes. Oh, it smells good. It sounds good, doesn't it? I wonder how many people are going to stand before God in the judgment and say, nobody ever told me I had to repent. Nobody ever told me I had to give up my... My, my life and turn to you. Because only in repentance, only in turning, we saw a number of scriptures, <clears> the Bible's replete. Only by doing that is God pleased. You know? A lot of people know the name of Jesus, but they don't know him. Someone greater than Jonah is here. Wow. Said so the same thing about Solomon and all his glory. You know, Solomon wrote quite a few of the of the proverbs. Well, actually, I don't believe he wrote the proverbs. He probably gathered up proverbs through hundreds of years of, of proverbs were out there, and, and he gathered them together. And some of them, maybe he did write. I'm sure he did. Great words, and yet there's a greater one in Solomon here. I remember when I first heard and it was taught to me that Christ is in every page of the Bible and our, and our, our privilege is to find Him there, I thought, how could that be? But that is true. Christ is in every page of the Bible. Our duty and our privilege is to find Him there. Remember, this generation... The Ninevites, uh, the men of that generation that read will rise up to the generation of Christ was in, and will condemn it, because they repented at the prophet. But one greater than Jonah is here. This generation, this generation is not bowing their knee to Christ. So you know what they're going to do? They're going to be forced, and they are going to bow, and they're going to realize that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's one of the things about the great passage in Zechariah 10. We all need to heed that. What the Jewish people are going to do is they are going to mourn and wail because the one they crucified and disowned is the one that's coming back in glory to save them and to cleanse them and to fulfill their whole word. You know, I'll tell you, I've never been to Israel, but I do know enough about it. The Jews, the Orthodox Jews are going to take the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, very, very seriously. Very seriously. And so should we. Father, I just thank you for this night. I thank you for the, the profoundness of your word. Every word of God is pure, and you are a shield that round about those that trust in you. Father, help our unbelief Increase our trust, Father, and I pray that we would take the word personally, seriously. We believe every word of it. You know, as Greg was saying, believe the whole Bible. Whether people laugh, mock, they're going to be mockers. The apostle told us that. Beware, in the last days, mockers will abound. They'll be there. Where is the promise not only is coming, but back. This, this, this book, that can't be the Word of God. That was, that was from years ago. We need something new, something that will tickle our own itching ears. Give us teachers that are going to tell us what we want to hear. We want a God that's going to give us what we want instead of a God that loves us and gives us what we need, forgiveness, reconciliation, joy. Lord, I pray that we would glean these from your word, that we would go out in confidence, proclaim your word, and, and be Christians. You know, we can do, but we're being Christians before anything. And I thank you for tonight, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Fulfilling the scapegoat for us that the priests would lay their hands on. Remember, there was two of them. They slain one, and they put the hand, his hands on the other, and by a viable man, the Scripture says, the escape went out into the wilderness, never be seen again, carrying our sins far away. So what Jesus did, Jonah was in the belly of the fish, just like Christ was in the belly of the earth. Wow. This is a miracle of sustainment, folks. This is nothing less than a miracle of sustainment. How could God... Do this. Man can expect no help apart from God. You know, I've heard all kinds of stories about this. I read a book one time about a skeptics, and they were saying there is no way that in the belly of this fish or in any fish the gastro juices would literally eat, the acids of them would literally eat away. And yet Jonah was sustained. It's a miracle. I think that there's no more miracle in the Bible that calls for so much rebuke than those who say that is absolute nonsense. Three days? Where did he get his air? Where did he get his food? Where did he get his sustainment? He was, he was, he was in the belly. He was full of the juices, these gases. It's a miracle of sustainment. You know, you and my life is a miracle of sustainment right now. We are saved from the penalty of sin. We are saved from the power of sin. And we'll be saved from the presence of sin. That's a miracle. And only Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen again, fulfilling the types of Jonah, and and having this prophet that was so ridiculed. What do people do today? They ridicule Jesus Christ. They ridicule his death, they ridicule his resurrection. Exactly what they do about the prophet Jonah to say this is a bunch of bunk. Jesus didn't seem to think so. And I always wondered if Peter thought about Jonah when he <laughs> when he reeled that fish in. I mean that had to really really uh cause him to well, you know, well, you know it did because remember when he was in the boat and, and Jesus said, you know, row out a little ways and said, oh Lord, all night we've been fishing, caught nothing, but at your word, I'll do it. He let his net down and, and it was on the right side of the boat. And he hauled in such a fish, he couldn't haul it in. And what did Peter do? Yeah, we're going to get multiple money for this. No, he fell down. He said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, oh Lord. I don't understand this. That's what happens when God comes into our life. We don't we are so taken up with the fact that the living God has transcended and become one like us to live a life that we could not live and to take punishment for sin. And not only that, he ascends from the dead, he goes to his father, and he sends the Holy Spirit. So now we not only can, you know, like like we used to think, oh wow, what it'd be great to sit and watch Jesus do all this? Thing? Now He's within us. He's living that life through us. We can touch him, we can feel him through our eyes of faith. Wherever we go, he goes. We'll never be parted from him. We will never hear the words, I'm going away. I'm going away for a while. You know, you're on your own. We will never ever hear those words because Christ ascended, he rose from the dead. A sign that he attributes to this, this prophet. Wow, that's the miracle of our sustainment, of the sustaining power, I should say, of God. Look at verse 3, For you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the floods surround me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, verse 4. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus said on the cross. I'll tell you why he cried that, (laughs) for you and for I. You know, as here, as Jonah says, Lord, I feel like you've forgotten me. But you know, cry at your holy temple. The word is replete with the fact that Jesus said, The bulls of Bajans have surrounded me. Wicked men stick out their tongues with me. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But we know that through Genesis 22 and so forth, as Abraham went with Isaac, the father went with Jesus. But Jesus all of a sudden became sin for you and I. The sky grew dark, and he cried out that cry that announces what sin is, separation from God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he bowed his head in death, and he went into the heart of the earth, carrying your sins far away. There's one greater than Jonah here. He said, the waters, verse 5, surround me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds are wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. You have brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. There's something in the Psalms in Psalm 31 that displays what must have been in the heart of Jonah. Psalm 31, verse 22 says, As for me, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from before thine eyes. Nevertheless, thou didst hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to thee. You know, one thing about God, when we cry to Him from a true heart, He hears us. There is no crisis in the Christian life too great for God. None. That is the joy. That's the, that's the good news of not only coming to Christ for forgiveness of sin, but as, as a brother, a weaker brother that's caught in sin. I have good news for you, brother. You're a sinner. You're sinning now. Come to Christ with all your heart. He won't forsake you. You come to Him with a full and an understanding heart of trust and a pure heart. Oh Lord God, I have sinned. And there was nothing but forgiveness. You know, one of the greatest stories I think that's impacted my life, my grandfather actually told me this story way when I was a little kid. He was by no means a Christian. But I love the uh, the story of the prodigal son. You know? Eh, I want to live my own life. I'm tired of this religion. I'm tired of this being here. I want to live my own life. I want to sow my wild oats. You know what I'm saying? I want, I want to do this. Am I still my dad's son? Yeah, my dad's son, but I want to go out on my own. And some of you do that now as a Christian. You want to go out and still have that little wild oats sowing of, of whatever it is, whether it's drinking or whatever it might be. And you go out and you go out, and what does God do? God starts making things really hard to the point where you're eating really bad stuff. And the point where you can not even at a place where you eat the stuff that pigs would eat. And you finally come to your senses. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to go back because even there I always had food. And I know what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to go back and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against you. I'm in heaven and I'm worthy to be called your son. That's what sin does. It deteriorates your understanding of your position. So, I'm not worthy to be a son, and you're coming to him. And what does God do? God doesn't say, you know what, man, I'm really going to make you sweat. I'm way over on this end of heaven, and you've got a long way to go, pal. You better enjoy it. No, God's compassionate. He runs out to meet you. There's always forgiveness and always joy when we turn to God in repentance and trueness of heart. And he throws on the robe, and he sticks the ring on him, and you know... My son was lost. I thought he was dead, but now he's found. That's our God, man. You know, we don't deserve it. But that's how he is. And for Jonah, he prays that in the the belly of a fish. Wow. I'm I'm almost done here. Verse 70 says, When my soul fainted within me, I remember the Lord. My prayer went up to you and your holy temple. Verse 8, Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. There we go. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. You talk about about power. Look at verse 10. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah unto the dry land. You know, salvation is of the Lord. You know, this is a a running, uh, I believe, a prophecy of, of God setting things straight that the world has seen it, although they won't acknowledge it or they won't admit it, but they will definitely see it at the end of this day of grace that's from psalm ninety eight simply says this: all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. God spoke and it was done you know one of the one of the I want to end with this psalm thirty three I believe it is. 33, verse 9, don't quote me on that. I love it. Actually, we'll read Psalm 33, verse 8 and 9. If you want to write these down or underline it, I do. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Verse 9, for He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Wow. That's Psalm 33, 8, 9, man. That is absolutely wonderful. The Lord spoke to the fish. The fish accomplished what it was there for. Just like the fish that had the drachma that that Peter caught and opened up. He accomplished what he, you know, got to compare that fish. To do just that. God would prepare them as well to do just that. And whatever is happening in our life, God prepares beforehand. That's what I love about God. You know, as a good mother uh, or you know father, but usually what a mother would do, mother prepares for her little ones at a time. She knows when she's going to feed them, she prepares for them. She knows that she's going to give them a bath. Or whatever the case is, prepares for them. Nourishes them. Has them in the forefront of her mind, you know. Always, That's what God's doing to us. Every day, He prepares what we need. He prepares what we should do. He prepares to instruct us, to encourage us, to fill us with joy, to fill us with His promises. He promised us eternal life, you know. How will we not, with His Son, give us all things? You know, it's not hard to see. Next week, uh, we'll get into the rest of this uh, wonderful book. Um, We've gotten halfway. We'll get into the next, half next week. We'll leave with the fact that the Lord spoke the fish, and, and out comes Jonah into the dry land. Wow. Jonah was in death in the belly of the fish and now he's on dry land and back to life. Now God is amazing God and I want to end tonight just with that with that note. If your devotional life, if you will, I don't know if I really like that term, but if your life of, of with God seems to be dry lately or You know, status quo or whatever uh, comes to your mind. Just remember that God is ever seeking our heart. He's ever seeking us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He never fails us. Remember that bumper sticker I talked about quite often? It was back in the 80s. Uh, Feel far from God? Who moved? And that's a biblical precedent. The Bible says, we saw it last uh, Sunday, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you double sinners, you double-minded people. God is ever wanting to have fellowship and sweetness. He always wants to be there that we might behold his beauty. That's what he desires. Have you beheld the Lord's beauty lately? Have you told him you loved him lately? If you feel far from God for any reason, come to Him and cry out to Him and tell Him, Lord, I feel far from you. I, I, I feel like the last you know days or whatever, I, I just don't feel right. I feel something's wrong. I know I'm not to go on my feelings. My relationship with Christ is based on fact, what He's done for me. It's the faithfulness that He is towards me. That's my solidity. My whole life and fellowship is based on God and His righteousness and His sacrifice. The only thing that ruins my fellowship with God is my sin, is my lethargic attitude. If you have not stood in awe of God in prayer life lately, get into it tonight and ask Him, Lord, show me anew. If there's areas I need to confess, I want to confess them. If there's areas of darkness somewhere, show them to me, and He will. That's one of the things that the Spirit does is, is convict of sin. We are His temple. My wife does not like spiders. Our house is our temple. I am not, if I can help it, going to allow spiders in the house. Why are we allowing sin in His temple? That's the problem. If you have a problem and you feel far from God, who moved? Cam, do you want to pray, please? Thank you, our Father in Heaven, that you are faithful to pursue us with your loving kindness, your mercy, your grace, and we all pray that when you do show us your mercy and grace, that we would not turn our back on it for despise, but simply humble ourselves and give you thanks that you are a kind and merciful Father that loves us infinitely and eternally. We thank you for the blessings that you provide for us um, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Mm -hmm. For the Lord has spoken it. And as we said before, all traces of the Edomites, as far as we can tell, disappeared by about 70 A.D about the time of the desecration of the temple and thereabout. But nonetheless, this is what God said would happen. Wait till we get to Nahum and read about the downfall of Nineveh, one of the most bloodiest, cruel civilizations ever. Is it too bloody and cruel for God? It's nothing for God. It's stubble for God. This world has not, again, this world's going out of control for those that don't know God. For us that know God, it's perfectly going exactly the way God had intended. He's in control of everything. That should bring so much comfort. Look at verse 19. The south shall possess the mountains of Edom. The south. I love that. The Negev in some translations. It's the south. It's much like an area, if you look, again, like we said last week, the map of the United States, how Texas kind of goes down. It's the south end. The Negev was an area that of, of great importance for Kadesh Barnea, for example. And the spies went up to Kadesh Barnea and looked at, out at the land and they came back and so on and so forth. For what I think is the south, again, verse 19, shall possess the mountains of Esau and the lowland shall possess Philistia. That's right now. You know where that land of uh, the uh, uh, Gaza Strip? And that area in there. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim. The fields of Samaria, Benjamin shall possess Galeed. This is absolute victory, and this is going back. We can take these promises all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, 17, and so forth. They're going to possess that land that God had promised to Abraham. And the captives of this host of the children of Israel, verse twenty, shall possess the land of the Canaanites, as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Shephard shall possess the cities of the south. Verse twenty one, then saviors or deliverers shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau. And I love the way that Obadiah ends his prediction or his prophecy, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Just as God in all of, of history, all of time, from the time that you were in Him before the foundation of the world till, the, till all eternity, where God is, we are going to be. Where God is, His people's going to be. They're the apple of His eye. And that's going to be the wonder of the earth. Can you imagine, these scriptures will be around, can you imagine at at, at the, the Millennium Kingdom and everything that's gone on, people pick up God's word and read the prophets and read, read what the prophets say, and they're going, "Lord God, you did exactly what you were what you said you were going to do. You're so faithful. God forgive me for the time I've wasted and not looking at the Word of God and it is true. Every single word of it is true. We don't have time for the false teachers. We don't have time for the false prophets. We have time only for those that are going to take God's word as what it is. Truth. Every single word of it is truth. I'll end with what I've written in my Bible and I believe this. Though it does not seem like it now, my God will reign over all the earth. Cam, do you want to pray for us? Thank you, Father heaven, for preserving these writings miraculously writing the prophets. When we look back, we see that what they have spoken was fulfilled and is being fulfilled, and in the future will be fulfilled mm. because of your faithfulness to your to your children. We thank you for. The freedom to study your word and the truth of it.